Okay. We're going to divide this uh, a little bit differently than your text. Your text divides into innate and adaptive. Okay. Uh, all right. Now, within innate, there are two very different levels of protection, and we so we're going to talk about essentially three uh, types of defensive systems in the body to protect you. Mammals, birds, vertebrates have the most extensive immune systems, as far as we know. But all animals have some type of immunity. So, the first uh, level of this is just like what you see going on in Europe right now, or along the Rio Grande. And that's, uh, you build a wall and keep them all out. <laughs> if you don't have anybody in, you don't have any problems. Okay? which is a typical response, okay? But with the same works for pathogens. If you just don't let any of them in, well, then you don't have to worry, okay? So we look at this as a, uh, a the, uh, defense that prevents them from getting into the body. Now, we're gonna, these are gonna include the skin, mucous membranes that are part of all of these systems. That's our first level that we, we have. So we've got essentially a defensive wall. All right, now, so skin, um, you've all been through anatomy, so you know what the skin is. I'm not gonna go through epidermis, dermis. You already know that basic information. Um, but the epidermis in particular, multiple layers of tightly packed cells, many of which are dead already, okay? Um, for the most part, an unbroken skin is relatively microbe-proof. There are a few microbes that can penetrate the skin, but most cannot. And so it acts essentially as a barrier to the microbes. Okay? This is the surface of the skin. Electron micrograph. Uh, remember we talked about the, uh, back in anatomy, we talked about the squamous epithelium, the keratin-filled, outer layer, and this is what it looks like. And you can see they're very flat and thin, they're all dead at this point, and they are in the process of flaking off, which is a, a part of that defensive approach. Now, so the skin protects you in several ways. Okay, so first of all, many, most organisms can't get through it. Okay, that's first. first. In addition, we all sweat. You sweat, all, you sweat every day. You may not <coughs> notice it when you're not sweating a lot, but every day you are perspiring to some degree. Uh, if it evaporates as fast as it's produced, you, uh, you just don't really even notice. Um, this is a particular problem in dry climates. People will not even be aware that how much water they're losing because it evaporates so quickly. Of course, Virginia in the summer did not happen to be one of those here when it gets up in the 90s and the humidity is at 88%, you can reach over, bend over, and pick up a pencil and you'll start feeling the sweat run off of you. I mean, it's, it's that bad. And that's simply because the water doesn't evaporate. It's so much water in the air that it just doesn't evaporate well. Right. So, so we have sweat glands. Included in perspiration is salt. Okay, salt is one of the mechanisms, one of the essentially that we can use to prevent microbial growth. Uh, most microbes are pretty sensitive to salt because they're the dehyd 
he had great stuff. Um, and, and it's really obvious that you have salt. Uh, not that you need to taste your own sweat sometime, but uh, in the summer, uh, I don't have a dog now, but we used to have a dog. You'd take her out for a walk, you'd come back in, and you're you know, sweating because it's summer, and she'd start licking your legs because there's salt on them and the perspiration. And animals crave salt, most animals. Well, I guess we do too. So, um, so there's salt. There's also some antimicrobial peptides, which uh, will help, and then lysozyme. Lysozyme is an enzyme that actually will slowly break uh, the bonds in the peptidoglycan cell wall. So all of these then are going to help limit the number of microbes that can exist on your skin. Now, we have residents that live there and they're quite happy in this environment, that's where they live, but pathogens may be repelled by that. Okay. Uh, we also have uh, sebum uh, from the uh, sebaceous glands. Okay. This keeps your skin, well, it doesn't do so well right now on my fingertips, but, uh, but it keeps your skin uh, more flexible, pliable, less likely to tear, okay? which means that you don't have openings in the skin, which is as much as possible. It also is slightly uh, acidic. So your skin ends up being salty, it ends up being slightly acidic, and there are antimicrobial compounds on it. And it's a pretty good environment, pretty good way of stopping a lot of microbes from, from entering, okay? Okay, I'm not going to go through the epithelium and all that. We, you, you've already been through that. Um, but one of the things that the epithelium does do is you keep shedding cells. Now, you're dropping epithelials everywhere you go. There's a trail of them everywhere you've ever been. Okay? Um, which for dust mites is a, a windfall. That's, that's their food. That's what they eat. Uh, dead skin cells. They're happy as can be. Why we have dust mites everywhere, okay? But where there's and they, and it's not just us. I mean, you know, cat dander, dog dander. They're they're pretty flexible about that kind of thing. Uh, but it does help when something does get established on a particular cell, and then all of a sudden the cell breaks off and falls to the ground. Anything on it goes right along with it. Okay, now this is great. We have this uh, relatively microbe-proof barrier. Okay. Unfortunately, as living organisms, we have a requirement to get things into and out of us. That means there have to be openings in that barrier, which then become portals of entry, which we've talked about. All right. Now, they are protected generally, uh, and, and this just shows the ones in the, uh, some of the, in the respiratory, because that's one of the more common places. But we have mucous membranes that protect all of the openings, whether it's uh, the mouth, nasal passages, the trachea, excuse me, uh, the digestive tract, uh, in the uh, reproductive tracts, in the vagina and the urethra, there's a certain amount of, uh, of mucus. And, and this serves to make it difficult for organisms to get into those portals because it's sticky, and they get caught in it, and many of the particles get caught. Uh, if, if you may not, you don't notice it, of course, because you can't see them. 
But if you're somewhere where it's really dusty for a day, um, and you're, you get a little congested, you blow your nose, you'll see that, it, that the mucus is colored with whatever you've been breathing. That's how much of that is being trapped in the mucus, okay? And then usually the mucus is swept out of the system, okay, from the trachea up, right, out of your nose. From the trachea, it ends up in your throat, you swallow it, it goes into your stomach, and the stomach is an acid bath. Only very few organisms survive that. So basically, between the skin and the mucous membranes, we have a fairly effective barrier. And, and you would be aware of that because you don't get sick very often. At least most people don't. Okay, they all, you know, that's because your system is limited. What you get in your So this is kind of first line, the little table here. Uh, what's number of cells, uh, how they're packed, are they dead, alive, so on and so forth. Uh, another thing about the skin is that it's relatively dry, usually. Not a, not, again, not a, a particularly favorable place. Um, but this gives you an idea of some of the, the, uh, the features of these two sections. Uh, we also have tears. Because the eyes are another portal. Tears uh, wash across your eye all day long, every day. Every time you blink, which is a lot more often than you think, because you're totally unaware when we're blinking for the most part. Uh, just because you're driving down the road, how, how often your eyes are closed. You know, it's amazing. Um, but what that does is spread the tears across the eyeball. And then any most of the time it evaporates. It has lysozyme in it again, which helps destroy the bacteria. And then any excess, of course, goes into the lacrimal apparatus, as it shows here. So the little ducks in the corner dry down in your nose, you know, the, the typical thing again you learned about in anatomy. Okay. Alright, another thing in this first line is all of your normal microbes. We have a lot of them, even on the skin. Lots of them live on our skin. They take up a lot of space. They produce compounds that may be uh, hostile to other microbes. They um, use up nutrients, and make it really more difficult for microbes to get established uh, on, on your skin. Right? And they really uh, do that. In addition, the microbes, your normal microbiota, is continually stimulating your immune system, which is always a good thing. Yeah. An active immune system is a happy immune system. Right? It doesn't, uh, it just sits around and has nothing to do that does not, that does not go well. Challenging. Okay. Um, of course, we get some vitamins from those, but that's really not part of it. Well, I guess in some ways it is. Uh, vitamin K is involved in blood clotting. Blood clotting is part of immunity. It, it can be considered to be you know, a, a portion of that. Okay, so we talked about the antimicrobial peptides uh, that are there. And this is just a, a list of some of the functions that, uh, again, first line of defense. Okay? Uh, stomach acid, um, saliva, constantly washing the inside of your mouth. Uh, that's why a dry mouth is not a is not good for you. Um, we have things that are constantly sucking up iron. Uh, microbes need iron in order to reproduce. We have molecules that grab any free iron that might be around because iron is always in short supply. 
keep them from getting iron, and they're not going to grow very well. Uh, bile, we in your thing, your last handout, talked about what bile did, sebaceous glands, remember what they did. Um, okay, defecation, that's getting rid of peristalsis, moving stuff on out if they don't get attached. Uh, vomiting does that. And of course, urine is continually flushes the urethra. So all of these are preventing microbes from getting in and getting established. Yeah. <coughs> Well, yeah, it's uh, more helpful when you have uh, uh, food poisoning of some kind. You need to get the, the toxins out. But usually food poisoning is more a matter of toxins than it is um, the actual organisms, although it can be some of the viral one types of uh, intestinal upset can, be, uh, can cause vomiting. And that, so basically it's cleaning out the stomach. Not that it's ever pleasant, but it's a reflex. You can't stop it. You can delay it, but you can't stop it. Get it over with. <coughs> and there's uh, some more, more things here. Well, uh, so that's our first line of defense. That's a barrier approach. Uh, if you don't let them in, then you don't have to mess with them. Uh, a time-honored approach to defending anything. Build a big wall, don't let anything in. If you have to have gates, you guard the gates tightly. I've been doing that for as long as humans have had uh, developed cities and stuff. All right. But as we can see everywhere, barriers are never 100%. They're never foolproof. Things do get through the barriers. Okay? And then you have to deal with them okay, once they've gotten through. And so that's our second line of defense. Now, so this is when they penetrated the skin and mucous membranes. They haven't made you ill yet, but they're there, okay? And so we have a second level of defense here that takes over. This is also part of the innate immunity. Now, innate means that you are born with it. It's genetically determined. It's the same response no matter what the pathogen might be not any different, not really any significant difference. It's kind of like a first responder response. You know, something breaks through, first responders, most of the time that's enough. We get to, when it's not enough, then we get to the adaptive system, which we'll talk about later. And so we, we have the second level then uh, that is uh, protected. Now, part of it is in your blood plasma, the iron, iron binding uh, compounds. We're going to talk about complement proteins a little bit later. Antibodies, that's in the adaptive system. I'm not going to get into that right now. But you have numerous white blood cells, uh, leukocytes in particular, neutrophils, macrophages, that are uh, phagocytic. Okay? And so we have a cellular level response uh, is part of our second barrier. Primarily, we're looking for neutrophils to respond. Um, okay, you've all been through the granulocytes and agranulocytes. I don't think I need to go over that again. Um, agranulocytes are generally involved with adaptive immunity. Granulocytes generally with innate immunity. OK, 
Okay, and so these are the different types. Okay, we did this in lab not long ago. Okay. So uh, white blood cells uh, can signal things. Uh, if you get an increase in white blood cells, that's often a, an indication of an infection of some kind. Uh, particularly neutrophils, because they're the largest uh, group of, uh, of those. If you get extra eosinophils, this is usually indicative of either an allergy or a parasitic worm, which uh, they tend to be respond to that. Okay, neutrophils. With viral infections, you won't see any change in these cells. You'll see changes in the lymphocytes, which are part of the adaptive immunity when you have uh, a virus. And they, they work by phagocytosis in part. So the cell simply engulfs bacteria, puts them into a little vacuole, merges that with a lysosome, which contains digestive enzymes. Those enzymes break down the bacterium, and then the waste product is spit out, essentially. That's phagocytosis. That's what's going on. Now, eosinophils can also kill. They do not, you know, worms are much too large to be phagocytosis. And so what they do is they attach to their surface and they secrete chemicals that can weaken them. Occasionally kill them, but they definitely can weaken them. Of course, many of your of the worms will have a fairly uh, have a, a cuticle around them that protects them from this. Because it's not like they're not responding. Okay, um, they're trying to make a living here, and the, the white blood cells are. Now, if eosinophils are attaching them and trying to secrete toxins, then if you're going to be a successful parasitic worm, you're going to have a cuticle that wards most of that off. And as a constant, again, constant back and forth battle between immunity and pathogens. Uh, okay, let's see. Killing by neutrophils. They can also produce chemicals, which I will get into a, a little bit later. Now, the real problem here is I said that something has penetrated your outer layer. Well, how do you know that that's happening? How does the system know to respond, you know, this innate system? Well, we have cells, uh, in fact, most of your cells contain um, receptors on them, which can initiate a defensive response, okay? Now, this is uh, some of the things that they can detect. This is the host cell. Flagellin is a uniquely bacterial protein. They can detect the presence of that, which tells us that there are bacteria there, and they can send then a chemical message to other parts of the immune system. Okay. Uh, there are receptors for peptidoglycan. Now we all know what peptidoglycan is, and that's another indicator. They have some that can detect LPS. This is a large response here. This is where you really get a strong response. And then there are receptors that can detect certain nucleotide sequences that are unique to bacteria. So we have these receptors. They're called toll-like and nod uh, proteins. They're basically, they're on the surface of many of your cells. And when they detect one of these things, they send out a chemical message that the immune system It's what makes up flagellate in bacteria. 
protein that makes up the flagellum in a bacteria. Alright, so this is your detector. Okay? If you don't have a sensor to tell you that the that the outer met, you know, outer layer has been broken, then you don't know. You have to have some kind of detector that tells you that that's happening. And that's what, what these sensors do. They tell the immune system, hey, something's gotten through, you, you need to respond. Okay? Um, and these are some of the uh, types of receptors. We won't, you don't need to memorize any of these. And where they're found, what they detect, Amps are uh, microbial molecules that they detect. Um, and you can see there's a whole list here. Flagellin, lipid A, uh, liposyphoic acid, and gram positives. Uh, lipid A is in gram negatives, flagellin, and so on. Uh, and even they can some kinds of double-stranded RNA because you don't have any double-stranded RNA. Double-stranded RNA only comes in viruses. So, lots of other, and then there's the last one down here that they've identified, but they, at least at the time this book was written, they didn't know what it was, didn't know what it did. Which is, this, this system changes on a regular basis. Okay, um, now what do they do when this happens? Well, they send a chemical message, and there's a couple of things that, that can be a result of that. One is an inflammatory response which you would have covered in anatomy to some degree, we'll go over it again here. Uh, apoptosis means that an infected cell commits suicide and initiates a self-destruct sequence, you know, just like in Star Trek, you know, or in Big Bang Theory. So, uh, but cells do that. Uh, many cells, you know, you do lose cells on a regular basis because something goes wrong. When, some, when they, the cell can detect that something's gone wrong, they will, that will initiate this self-destructive self response. Um, and then it can also get other innate responses. Now, one of the types of chemicals besides the things that are sent to the immune system are interferons. Interferons are produced by your cells that are already infected by a virus. Those cells are doomed. They're either going to die from the virus or the immune system is going to kill them, but they're done for. But what they will do is release proteins that will go from the infected cell over to other cells, there's their chemicals going across, will cause them to produce chemicals which will attach to the, to the uh, double-stranded RNA and block it from reproducing when the virus enters your cell. Okay? So we do have some responses for that. But interferon does one thing and one thing only. This is it. And there's a number of different interferons. Uh, for a while it was hoped that interferon was going to be like antibiotics were, only for viruses. That has not been the case. Uh, you, very rarely are interferons given to individuals. There's a high toxicity rate with them, and so there are a lot of side effects. The one place that it's commonly used is with people with hepatitis C. Commonly, they can have very strong responses uh, to it. So it's not something you can take. Like a, you, know, you could take uh, tetracycline if you had to for weeks. Interferons are 
Okay, we have another chemical that's in the blood. It's called complement. It's, it's a group of about 20 different proteins that are always circulating in the blood. Part of that plasma layer. Um, and they're given numbers. We'll see some numbers on here. You do not need to memorize the numbers, uh, but we'll, we'll see some of them. Now, when they're activated, they can cause a foreign cell to lyse, or they can tr trigger an inflammatory response in fever. Those are nonspecific responses, <coughs> innate types of responses. There's three ways it can be activated. Again, I don't, I'm not concerned that you know all the pathways, but it's, there's, uh, if there's an antigen with antibodies attached, complement proteins can attach to this complex, start this process, which then can lyse the cells and cause inflammation and attract white blood cells. Opsonization means they attract white blood cells. Okay? If there's an endotoxin, you have a different pathway, but it all comes down to the same. If you, if you remember the uh, when, when you did uh, blood clotting, there were uh, I'm trying to remember what we called them exactly, but there were uh, there's one blood clotting pathway that started inside cells and another one that started outside of cells, but they all ended up in the same place eventually. Okay. This is very similar, uh, and so and and lectins are another. Uh, Material that may be produced by bacteria. So these then are a chemical response that's already in your in your blood all the time to the presence of pathogens. Um, part of what causes inflammation is not the only thing, but it's a part of that. Um, it can cause the cell to lyse. Uh, I think I have a diagram here. This these are what are called membrane attack complexes. Uh, I don't have a, a picture of them. But what happens is uh, the bacterium, uh, there are 20 different proteins, and one of them attaches, that attracts the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one, and pretty soon they form a ring on the surface, and then they punch a hole through the membrane. And that usually kills the cell. Okay. So you're carrying these around all the time. But what they can do is always the same. They have no, there's no variation in, in, in what they can do. Therefore, it's a part of your innate immunity. Okay. If you get a vaccination, it does absolutely nothing to its part. It's not what it's doing. Okay. All right. Then uh, we have inflammation, another non-specific response or, or part of your innate response, the second level. Um, this is caused usually by tissue damage of some kind. Uh, we. We went over this again in anatomy. You know, the area gets red, it swells, it gets warm, um, and if it gets, if it's a big enough uh, inflammatory response, it'll hurt you. You'll have pain associated with it. Okay. Typical inflammatory response. Two kinds: acute and chronic. Acute, just like as always with diseases, acute it means it starts suddenly; it doesn't last long. Uh, chronic is uh, often what causes problems in. Some of the some diseases and processes, like for instance, uh, the uh, arthritis is a chronic inflammation of the the joint, primarily the articular part of the joint. Uh, there, and there are others that are similar to that. 
the prolonged uh, chronic inflammation is never good for you. Okay. Acute inflammation is very effective. I think I'll also tell you, as we'll see when we get to problems with the immune system. Okay, so acute, uh, quickly, short-lived, um, it's really important. And here's what it does, I and mean, this you should have, again, this should be uh, repeat to some degree. It causes a dilation of the local capillaries, so it increases blood flow. Increasing blood flow means that you're delivering more white blood cells, you're delivering clotting factors uh, to the area, and it become, they become more permeable, which means that stuff in the capillaries can leak out into the damaged area. And that tends to keep the any microbes that entered uh, kind of confined to that area. Uh, and starts the process of getting of getting rid of them. Uh, so complement can uh, initiate this. That's what you're seeing here. Uh, here's what you're going to see is uh, capillaries normally after inflammatory response they've gotten much larger in diameter. The permeability means that fluid and white blood cells can more easily escape out of the circulatory system and into the tissue area. Um, and you've probably seen a diagram like this before. Uh, something penetrates, you get the uh, increased flow, swelling, some heat. Heat helps to activate uh, the white blood cells and activate the repair mechanisms. Uh, you, uh, histamine uh, is what causes that vasodilation. And then you get a blood clot formed. Eventually, this, these microbes are gotten rid of, and the, the process returns to normal. And we've all had this happen to us. You know, usually a little nick or a cut on, on you know, on your fingers or your hands or your arm. You know, and this is what happens. Right? Um, and in that sense, it's, it can be very, very effective. The repair, repair mechanism. Because if you had damage to the tissue, you have to repair that damage. Okay, so this is all part of your innate immune system, level two. Level one is the barrier, level two, chemicals in the blood, cells like neutrophils, macrophages, inflammatory response, and a fever. Uh, there are chemicals that are called pyrogens. I like pyromaniacs, people like fire, but that's where the name comes from. What they do is they get uh, the essentially your uh, thermostat set at a higher at a higher temperature. Uh, that's done in the hypothalamus. That's where you regulate body temperature, and it increases the body's temperature. And what this does is, first of all, it inactivates. Uh, it, it depending on the particular organism. It may start to denature some of their proteins. It may inactivate some of the toxins. It um, uh, may also uh, increase the speed at which your uh, innate immune system responds. It uh, takes the bacterium out of its optimum temperature so that it does not grow as well. Because it'll have an optimum temperature usually, which is your normal body temperature, because that's where they want to live. 
you move them out of that by two or three degrees, that can have a, quite an impact on their ability to grow. And so as long as the conditions that led to the fever are there, the fever will continue. Um, it, so it inhibits growth, enhances interferons, enhances activities of phagocytes. Uh, and so basically what you're finding today is that uh, most physicians are much less, more reluctant to treat a fever as long as it's not a, you know, a strength low-grade fever, uh, unless it's a long-term low-grade fever, which then indicates something entirely different. Uh, even with children now, if it's a lower fever, they do not recommend treatment because it's, an, it's part of your body's immune response. If you take aspirin or something like that, which will lower the temperature, what you're doing is counteracting your own immune system. It uh, affects, let's see, uh, aspirin affects the release of prostaglandins and, and histamines, which contribute to the uh, inflammatory response, and therefore you get less of the thyroid cancer. Yeah, they're, they're, they're really pretty effective. Uh, but again, uh, and so you, you have a reduction in swelling. Okay, that's why people with arthritis will take, you know, take LEV or something like that, uh, and it doesn't hurt so much. Well, the problem is still there. You haven't fixed the problem, but what you're doing is making your less less inflammation. Less inflammation, there's less pain. It's just that simple. Uh, and, and so uh, that's what those drugs do. And that's your innate immune system. Really pretty simple, huh? Not so bad. We haven't gotten this big stuff yet. Okay, but. Keep in mind, innate means that the response is not um, going to be modified for a particular organism. It's going to be the same no matter what the organism is. That's why it's innate. It's built in. It's uh, an automatic response. You're running on auto. Okay? And this is the kind of response that uh, organisms down to jellyfish have. They have some of these responses. They're not uncommon throughout the animal kingdom. Now, this is uh, <coughs> effective most of the time, but not always. And if you didn't have another backup to this, then when this was not sufficient, then the disease would have the opportunity to spread and maybe result in death. So, that's innate, and so when that occurs, when the innate system is not sufficient, then we bring the adaptive immune system into the picture. Now, adaptive is exactly what, we, what that means. Adaptive means it can recognize specific pathogens and respond to that specific pathogen. Not all the others, that one. And then next time, if there's another one, they'll respond to that one. It's sort of like calling the SWAT team. Okay? That you know we're going to we're going to take care of this one one issue here. Now, uh, so, so they have to be able to recognize. That's where we get into the proteins. Proteins are always involved. Anytime you have recognition of other things in the body and living systems, it's always going to be by proteins. 
Okay, remember proteins have unique three-dimensional shapes. The part, these parts of the system have three-dimensional shapes that are complementary to parts of the pathogen and therefore can recognize them and can respond. Okay? Now, there are a couple of things we want this to be able to do. Actually, four things. We first of all want it to be extremely specific. If I'm responding to one pathogen with this system, I don't need to respond to all the whole range of them. I just need to respond to the one that got through the barrier and through the innate system. Okay? So we're going to focus all of our energy on that one. Or maybe it might be three or four at that time, but we're going to focus on just those. Okay? So specificity. We also want diversity. Okay, now, here, now here's contradictory terms, right? I want it to be specific and I want diversity. That's hard to do. And so, but what we do then is we make many different cells in the uh, adaptive system, each of which can recognize a different antigen, a different part of a pathogen. And that way we can cover a wide range. And we will see a little bit about how we do that, and we'll see how really disorganized it is. Okay? Uh, but natural selection takes care of that. Because if it isn't going to work very well, then those individuals don't have very many offspring and they're going to survive. You're the product of millions of years of this development of evolution of this system. And, and, and so, you know, it's been pretty fine-tuned until a new pathogen shows up. And then we, maybe it's not in our repertoire. We'll see how we get that later. Okay. Uh, since part of this response is to kill cells, um, in particular, there's uh, not so much the antibodies, although they can do that, but there are also some T cells that are referred to as cytotoxic T cells. Their function is to kill your own body cells that are infected, to keep the pathogen from reproducing inside of them. Because antibodies can't get inside cells, they're only in the blood, the interstitial fluid, you know, that stuff. So we need to be able to stop those that are reproducing inside other cells. Well, when you hire an assassin, you better be real sure that you pointed out the right target. Because once you've hired them and pointed out a target, they're going to go kill them. That's what they do. And that's what these cells do. You point out what they're supposed to get based on their little three-dimensional uh, receptors. They're going to go kill them. Can't call them back. Once you send them out there, that's what they're going to go do. So you want to make sure that you can recognize your own cells. Self-recognition is really important. There are diseases or disorders where the immune system has not done that very well and then causes problems. But you want to make sure that you can separate friend from foe. Okay? This is not a time to be, as they used to say when I was in air defense in the Air Force, and they used to say, we'll just shoot them all down. We've got, we've got fighters and, and bombers and all that. It was back in the old days. Just shoot them all down, we'll sew them out on the ground. Oh no, that's not going to work. Okay? That's definitely not what you want to do. Okay? The uh, fighter pilots were not thrilled with that whole thing. From our point of view in the radar world, they're, they're tools. They're incredible. Yeah. And I actually had a general tell me that, so I was really interested. We had a, it was a simulated exercise, but way out on the edges of our radar was a whole bunch of aircraft and we were not sending the fighters all the way out because fuel had to get back and he said 
I don't care. Send them out there. Tell them to fight until they have no fuel left and they can ditch. Now, that's because it was a simulation of a, of a you know, real war kind of scenario. It's like a kind of thing. Of course, he was a two-star general. He could say things like that. Bruce, Bruce Brown was his name. He was a character. Uh, I did see the other night, I don't know when it's on, one of the stations on the cable on the upper the 100s level is having Dr. Strange one time. I don't know if you've ever seen that. That is one weird movie. It's a satire, but uh, a little spooky in places. Uh, how, you, how many of you have ever seen that? Nobody anymore? Okay. Peter Sellers, you know who Peter Sellers is? Some of you know? The Pink Panther? Okay, he, he played three different roles. That was really, and it was, yeah, if you ever do see it, it's a satire. Just remember that, it's a satire. It was meant to be a satire. Um, okay, then the, the last thing that we would like this, this part of the system do is to remember what it's already done so the next time we don't have to start from scratch. So we want some memory here, okay? And in fact, your adaptive immune system can, can do all, of the, all four of these things. And that's what we're going to be looking at here and, and trying to understand how does it do that. All right, so there, the, the cells that are involved in this are lymphocytes. Okay, the agranulocytes from back when you looked at blood cells. Two kinds, there are B cells and T cells. Okay? Each participates in a different portion of this immune response. T cells participate in the cell-mediated part. They, B cells produce the antibodies, which therefore are involved in this part. So there's a, a lymphocyte. You know, doesn't look very exciting. Just a cell with a big, big nucleus. Now, here's where the lymphatic system fits into your immunity. Now, the lymphatic system that you re hopefully recall has, well, it has a couple of functions. But one of the things that it has to do is take the plasma that has leaked out of the capillaries due to blood pressure and didn't get reabsorbed. It needs to be gotten out of the tissue area. If you don't do that, you're going to get continual swelling of the tissue, fluid, edema. And the, the lymph system is, uh, that's its one of its primary functions, is to, is to do that. So we have vessels in there, they're one way, they simply drain, and then they gradually come back from all over your body. And we now know even inside the brain, there are lymphatic vessels. That's a new thing here recently. Uh, and they've ultimately dumped that fluid that they've collected into the veins right up here in, in, in the shoulder, into the subclavian. So that all that fluid is returned to the circulatory system. Okay. Now, so here's, uh, well, it's just kind of a, a cartoon diagram. But you'll notice that in the groin area, around the digestive tract, up in the axillary areas and up in the neck, and, and also your tonsils, we have swellings. These are lymph nodes, in, in essence. They're part of the lymph system. And this is a typical lymph node right here. And the material from different vessels comes into it, 
And inside, you can see that there's a bit of, uh, well, this is how they pick, pick up the fluid. But inside, there's a little bit of a maze in there. And there are all different kinds of white blood cells, lymphocytes, inside each lymph node. Each of those, or many of them, have different receptors on them. And what they're doing is screening the lymph for the presence of antigens, presence of products from bacteria or viruses or an infection somewhere. Um, and if they detect that, they'll bind and then they're going to respond. And we'll look at their response in a minute. But this is where the lymphatic system becomes also part of immunity. It's not just a drain, okay? Uh, you know, which is important, okay? But it also assists the immune system to detect the presence of, of pathogens. Now, there are uh, the primary organs are the, the red bone marrow and the thymus gland. These are involved in the production and maturation of B cells and T cells. So we'll look at that in a moment. And then you have the lymph nodes, the spleen, the tonsils. Uh, I imagine most of you still have your tonsils. Don't you? Okay, and when, I, when I was a kid, they, they yanked those things in a good half of a reason and bang, take them out. They don't do that anymore. They have a function. Actually, sometimes they grow back anyway. But, um, I had mine out when I was five years old. I don't remember being sick particularly, but back then, if there was any indication whatsoever, they took your tonsils off. Okay, now I think I was five, but what I know. So that kind of knows you're gone. But you can imagine why you need the tonsils protecting the area of the mouth. Lots and lots of nasty things go in your mouth, even if you can't see them. Okay, now, we're going to use the term antigen. Um, and, and this is kind of an interesting uh, term. You take it apart, antigen, it means any substance that causes the generation of antibodies is an antigen. Antigen, generation antibodies, antigen. Um, it's a little bit of a circular definition, though, because uh, an antigen is something that generates antibodies, and antibodies are something generated by an antigen. I mean, you know, which came first? Uh, but that's the way, the, the way it's talked about. And they are recognized because they have little regions of three-dimensional structure that are referred to as epitopes. Uh, a bacterium might have eight or nine different epitopes that are possible responses by the immune system. Not just one. Viruses will have more than one. Okay. Allergens have one that you are responding to. Okay, now, so let's talk about the B lymphocytes first. Uh, B cells um, produce antibodies. That's basically what they do. They don't do anything else. Uh, they, well, they can detect the presence of antigens as well. But uh, their primary function is to produce antibodies. So, they're produced in the bone marrow, because all blood cells are produced in the bone marrow, without exception. But they mature in the bone marrow, and then they migrate from there into the lymphoid tissues, okay, into the spleen, into the, the tonsils, the adenoids, the, the, the lymph nodes. They migrate into those areas. There's a few of them circulating in the blood, but it's a pretty small number. And their function, as I said, to produce and secrete antibodies. Now, um, each B cell has a receptor on it. 
or actually I should say there are classes of B cells that have the same receptor. And it's not like you have just one that has that receptor. There are cells all over your body with that one receptor. But each cell has only one type of receptor. It may have multiple copies of it, but they only respond to one thing. Um, and the B cells, uh, each B cell generates only one receptor. And it recognizes normally only one epitope or one part of an antigen. So there's a connection there, three-dimensional match between the receptor on the B cell and the antigen, so that they'll fit together. Okay? Lock and key, just like enzymes and substrates. No different. Okay? So here's my the membrane of my B cell, right here. This is the uh, receptor, the B cell receptor. The red parts are the same on all of them basically. But out here on the tips, these, this is the variable region, and each different receptor will have different shapes out here that would respond. This particular one, just very generic here, will respond to that shape. Okay? This is the epitope, this part of this much larger cell. These two combine together, and that will activate the B cell. Now, when a B cell is activated, uh, I don't have a diagram. Let's see. No. When a B cell is activated, the first thing that it does, and, and we'll get into this in more detail, is it begins to make many, many copies of itself. That's when you get the swelling and making multiple, many, many, many copies. Most of those cells will differentiate into what are called plasma cells and the plasma cells will make the antibodies and dump them in, in mass quantities into your bloodstream and into the fluids between cells, but not inside of cells because they're great big giant proteins they can't go through the cell membrane. Okay? Um, and they're exactly the same as the receptor that was on your original B cell, only they're not attached to the cell anymore, they're just out there floating around. Uh, again, this is what the antibody, basic antibody structure, the variable area out here, and this is a, a little different model of it, but it always has this kind of Y-shaped structure. Okay. Let's see something. Just check something before I get into clonal selection. Probably not tonight. All right, so this is what antibodies do. Five different things that they can accomplish. One. They can attach, so many of them can attach to a toxin or an antibody or a virus that they basically neutralize them. They can't re it, it can't do anything because it's all covered with antibodies. That's one thing they might do. Another thing they may do after they have a bunch of them have attached is they may attract, secrete chemicals that attract phagocytes, which come and engulf the entire mess. Antibodies, antigen, everything, and get, and get rid of it. Sometimes they can take oxygen and water and make hydrogen peroxide, but more importantly, O3, which is an oxygen radical, which can oxidize chemicals inside or, or cell proteins inside the bacteria. They can do agglutination. They may connect to multiple cells. That's what happens when there's a, a classic blood test, okay, or blood typing test. 
you see in agglutination, you're seeing clumps of cells. Um, and then they can also attract natural killer cells, which will then also engulf this and get rid of it. Okay. So that, those are some of the things antibodies can do. Keep in mind always, though, that antibodies are found only in the fluid portions of the, of the cell, of the body. They're in the blood, they're in, in the intracellular inter fluids. That's where you're going to find them. They cannot get inside of cells. That's a, that's a key thing to remember. Um, an old name for this system, but you don't see used in the textbooks anymore, it used to be called the humoral system. <coughs> because if you go back in the history of biology and medicine, uh, they ancient writings back to the Greek time periods, uh, they believed that your health was governed by the relative levels of four fluids in your body, which they referred to as humors. Okay, one was uh, blood, one was uh, lack, uh, a phlegm, uh, I, another yellow phlegm, and what was the other one? Oh, bile. Those were the four humors, and if you were sick, it's because they were out of balance. And so they would do things to try to, that's where bleeding people came from. Now they just say, oh, yeah, too much blood, we're gonna get rid of some of that blood, they're gonna be all better, okay? Uh, and that was a common treatment for a long time. Uh, you either just bled them right out or you got leeches, and let the leeches take the blood. It's probably actually a nicer way of doing it uh, in the long run. Um, not that anybody wants leeches hanging on them, they're at least painless and they're beautifully adapted for doing that. That's because that's what they do. Okay. Uh, and so those are called humors, and therefore, since this is only in the fluid parts of the body, it was a written one time called the humoral system. Uh, you know, I don't see that term used much anymore. But if you do run into that, that's, that's where it comes from. Okay, now, there are, and I'm not going to uh, make you memorize the classes of antibodies. You may find that farther on in your career that you will have to learn all five classes, but I don't see the point of it here. Um, and I have a diagram here. This is the, when antibodies are first produced, many of them are like this with these multiple connections here. Um, individual ones of these act just like regular antibodies. This whole cluster here uh, can be involved in uh, activating the complement system. Okay. We have IgG, again, complement, uh, uh, opsonization. Um, these are found on B cell surfaces, these are found on mast cells, so these are the ones that are often involved with uh, allergic responses. We have uh, IgAs. Uh, they normally are dimers, or they may be as a monomer. Uh, they neutralize uh, bacteria or viruses. Uh, these are found in the mucous membranes. The, the, the monomers are in the blood, in the serum of the blood. The dimers are found in the mucous membranes, and the tears are in those areas. Okay. Uh, IgE, these are antiparasitic. They're involved with eosinophils and the release of histamine by them, which attract these. Um, 
And then lastly are the IGD. Um, nobody's entirely sure what that one does yet. There's a lot of things in the immune system that are just not fully understood. And this is something that changes so fast. So much research going on in, in immunity that any textbook is old before it's even finished. By the time it's been written, it's old. Okay, it's not, you know, that's uh, that's how science works. Uh, it's hard to be, really hard to keep up with. All right, so those are the B lymphocytes, and I think this is a very convenient place for us to stop for tonight. Did anybody have any questions? Okay, now my plan here is when we finish the three sections on immunity is we will have a take-home test on the immune system. Uh, I've done this before. I think this is such a complicated system that it's much more appropriate to do a take-home test on it. also then doesn't use up class time, so we can get on to all the diseases we talk about, all the gross pictures. Okay, then I guess we will stop here. I'll see you in lab in about 15 minutes. Yeah. HIV is a virus. Okay. It's a virus that uses healthy T cells as its primary host as well as macrophages. Okay. Your immune system responds to it. It learns to make antibodies, it learns cytotoxic T cells will build some of the helper T cells. Helper T cells will reproduce as fast as they can in the bone marrow. The problem is that, like many viruses, particularly retroviruses, which is what HIV is, they're really sloppy in the way they reproduce. And they keep having mutations in their surface proteins, which means I've come to recognize her, and now all of a sudden I've got viruses that look like you and I don't recognize you, and I've got to start all over again. And then a lot later, there'll be another mutation, and they're going to look like him. I don't know, what's that? I don't know, I've never seen that before. I've got to start all over and get ready. And, and so it's a constant, it's a wearing down of the immune system. The immune system does respond, but it, it just gets worn down to the point that it can't respond without treatment. The treatment, it can go for quite a while. I mean, some people have lived for years now with uh, HIV positive. Now, AIDS is a whole different... Is,